the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, I find myself thinking about Rudyard Kipling's poem, When All About You Are Losing Their Heads. Uh, if you can keep yours straight, you will be a man. I am sitting across from someone I have thought of as a, thought of as a very strong man and leader for many, many years and continue to do so, and that is former United States Congressman John Shattuck who uh, used to chair the Republican Study Committee in the House of Representatives. He was a member of the famed class of 1994, ushering himself into Congress and representing Arizona and the conservative movement in Congress for a great many years, starting in 1995. If I can call you John, thanks for coming back, sir. Please do. And uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, is one of my favorite poets of all time. And that poem, uh, I once, uh, when you're in the business... Uh, you have to thank people all the time. Yeah. And one thing, I, one, at one time, I sent all of my donors uh, a framed copy of, uh, or maybe it was all, all, all my major donors, a framed copy of that yes. very yeah. poem. Oh, it's a great poem. It, my dad loved Kipling and uh, brought my attention to that poem because it is what young uh, people yeah. uh, need to learn about life. Uh, and that is you have to retain your calm Absolutely. no matter what the situation and I like that other line in there. I'll botch it just a little bit, but uh, the warning in there about um, knaves setting traps for fools. Yep. Uh, and I should have happens every day. Yes, it happens every day. Happen- All right, you have been as we part. Speak. <laughs> yes, let's talk about your old employer, the House of Representatives. Um, you've been through these kinds of things before. I will start with my own. Uh, thought, which is, I am tired of Republicans who don't know how to lose, and it seems like it's increasingly a problem for us not learning how to win. John, what are you watching in Washington right now? Well, of course, we're all watching uh, this scenario play out where Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the votes to get himself elected speaker, uh, and we're going through this embarrassing uh, serial series of votes uh, which is, appear to be making no progress, or if they are making any progress, they are regressing in the sense that Mr. McCarthy is losing votes. And it's very bad for the Republican Party. Uh, I've talked to a couple of several people today, including at least uh, a few members of Congress, who have said that at the moment they look like the party of clowns. Now, like most instances, and this would fit uh, Kipling's poem, uh, the fact that they look bad uh, at the moment shouldn't be their number one concern. But if they allow it to go on for a long time, then it can be very damaging. And I would argue that Mr. Car- McCarthy should have never allowed this to happen and that if he understood the job well enough, uh, he wouldn't have allowed it to happen. How would he have prevented it from happening if he understood that job better? Well, um, or how could he now, even as a way out, possibly? Uh, e- e- either one. Um, we all kind of see this as unique because we have not had a series of votes for the speakership that goes on for a protracted period of time in you know, practically 100 years or in a very, very long time. 
And yet, if you look around the world, we are in a unique position. First of all, democracy is hard. It's really hard to get people to come to agreement on the major issues of their lives and their day and of their government. Um, So this isn't easy. Um, Newt Gingrich gave his life to getting elected speaker, and he planned for it for a lot longer and worked at it for a lot longer than Kevin McCarthy. So number one, we shouldn't be surprised this is happening, uh, and it shouldn't be giving people angst or concern. Uh, Part of the reason it's kind of interesting to see that all democracies, democracy being difficult, play this out in various ways. America is very unique in that we have just two major parties. In most of the world where there is a democracy, there are many parties. Uh, In some countries, as many as 17 parties, and there may be more that I'm not aware of, which means that the ruling party, in order to become the ruling party, has to build a coalition from all those 17 parties. That is all we're seeing play out here. Um, You have the majority of Republicans who have said they want Mr. McCarthy. He got himself to that point by negotiating largely, I believe, with the conservatives and made uh, many uh, very far reaching concessions in the rules package. Um, But what has happened is that there is now a subset and, and actually it reflects what America looks like today. There are Uh, middle-of-the-road Republicans, there are conservative Republicans, and then, as we know very well here in Arizona, there are populist Republicans. And they are not necessarily united by a conservative philosophy. They're united by the fact that they're mostly united by the fact that they're angry. Yeah, it's a temperament thing. Yes, they they have been hurt uh, in the last few years in America. They feel like they are not being represented. They are aggrieved. Indeed, I had a congressman tell me that the only way he could get attention at this point in his political career was to make the most extreme statements possible about how unhappy he or she is in order to demonstrate that he or she is fighting for this uh, great uh, for this group of, of populists who are just angry. They could be angry at what they perceive to be uh Elections that are not being conducted fairly. They could be angry at the embarrassment of our exit from Afghanistan. They could be angry at uh, the inflation. They could be angry at the, I would call them leftists, including environmental leftists that control Mr. Biden uh, and make his administration very much out of touch. Those people are angry. And I would describe the the outliers in the current debate. We'll call it 2021 votes. Those are people who for whom uh, expressing their anger is the most important thing right now. And while Mr. McCarthy made a lot of concessions to conservatives, um, he has not figured out what concessions the populists want uh, and then figured out which of those are reasonable and which are unreasonable. Yesterday we heard, for example, that some of them were demanding that you be able to – that they be able to put in a position of of committee chairman yeah, for this committee or, or certain that. committee choices. Yeah, mm-hmm. the speaker can't do that. There has to be a process for becoming committee chairman, and it has to do with how many years you've served there. So that's what I would call an unreasonable demand. And when I was representing conservatives in leadership meetings or in leadership fights, 
one of our hard, fast rules was don't make a demand that they can't possibly meet. Uh, that, that absolutely is useless. So to the extent that this group of outliers makes demands that Boehner or I mean, pardon me, <laughs> uh, that McCarthy cannot uh, agree to, then they're getting nowhere. So there really is this confusion because McCarthy hasn't figured out what the populists want. To some degree, it may not be clear amongst the populists what they want, uh, and they are not articulating it, so they can't find agreement. That's why it seems to me like more of a temper tantrum than anything else, because um, I have been feeling calls on this, John. I have uh, listened as best and as much as I can to some of the leaders of this group of 20, shall we call them, whether it's uh, Matt Gates or Bobert or um, uh, Chip Roy, I, I think maybe uh, might be the ringleaders of this. And, uh, and, and what they say for you know a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes sounds reasonable in a way, but there's nothing under that hood that I can sink my teeth into. I don't get what they want. And all I hear from supporters of theirs is that they just want to get rid of the swamp and they want to get rid of the establishment. Well, it seems to me that the people who want that with them, including myself, are supporting Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you have your Jim Jordans. Uh, you have people like Jim Jordan supporting him. Uh, you have people like Mike Gallagher supporting him, uh, McCarthy. So I, I don't understand what Jim Jordan and people like uh, 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 people like Gallagher. I said, did I say McCarthy? I meant Gallagher uh, supporting Kevin McCarthy. I don't understand what they see that someone like Chip Roy doesn't. And I have to tell you, um, it seems to me we are wasting time. It seems to me that there doesn't seem to be a consensus option here. It seems to me this is going to go for a few more days at least. And it seems to me if it does become ultimately Kevin McCarthy, he's going to enter as a speaker, a very weakened speaker. And I wonder if when we come back from break, you might talk about if there is a consensus candidate, how they could find it or what McCarthy might do to regain the strength, or if my concern is maybe overstated. We'll take a quick commercial I think he's endangered. There's no doubt about that. All right. Let's talk about that when we come back. And this notion also, too, John, if I can, about the establishment. The establishment seems to me a very odd buzzword. We'll we'll, we'll pick up on it when we come back. You know, once you become in charge, you are ipso facto the establishment. Donald Trump ran against the establishment. He became president. He was the establishment at that point, ipso facto, or just by dint of succeeding in becoming uh, the leader of the party and the president of the United States. All right, we'll pick up on all that with John Shattuck when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. A delight, honor, and privilege to have in studio with me uh, Congressman John Shattuck, former congressman representing Arizona. And, uh, John, the group of 20 that is leading this charge against uh, McCarthy's speakership, um, I, I don't know if there's anything he can do at this point to make them happy. I don't know if it makes sense for McCarthy to step aside because there doesn't seem to be a consensus candidate, people who in the group of 20 say they want someone like, uh, you know, they want someone like Jim Jordan. Well, Jim Jordan's ardently supporting Kevin McCarthy. So it just seems to me we are going to be doing this over and over again for the next several days or perhaps even longer. I think you mentioned we did something like this about 100 
years ago, and we went through 113 votes, I think, to get there. That's an awfully long time for Republicans who won the House of Representatives not getting to the Republican Party's business. I think it is dangerous. Um, could a Democrat? Could a Democrat come through? I mean, could could the Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries caucus with or make concessions to just enough Republicans who are moderates to put? I mean, could this end up being <laughs> a Democrat Speaker of the House? It's not impossible. Okay. Uh, I think the the initial danger is to McCarthy himself because he's not solving the problem, and that's demonstrating that he, at least as of the moment doesn't have the skills to figure out how to solve the problem. I don't think it's unique. I think as, if you look again, as I mentioned earlier, around the world, yeah. you see this where wherever there are more than two parties, uh, for one of the of the two parties to emerge as the leader, they got to negotiate with one of the other two parties. Uh, McCarthy here, I think, has clearly figured out how to negotiate with the conservatives. As you mentioned, you've got Jim Jordan, you've got Steve Scalise, you've got a number of the leaders of the conservative party. Uh, uh, there are some in Arizona that are of that group. Mm-hmm. Um, I think David Schweikert, yeah, yeah. Uh, who has been voting uh, consistently for uh, McCarthy. I think Debbie Lesko as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, absolutely. And, and what that means is that McCarthy had the skill and figured out, oh, I better negotiate with the conservatives. What he has not figured out is what do the the um, outliers um, and by and large, I think you can call them populists. What is it that they want and what do I need to give them that is reasonable to get their votes? And can I can I in fact come up with something that I could give them? That is reasonable to get their votes. Now, you and Newt Gingrich went through this. We, we went through this. We absolutely went through this. In some ways, when you're in a legislative body, you realize that what's going on in an incredibly public way today happens in a microscopic way Daily, on a weekly. continuous <laughs> yeah. basis. Yeah, the, yeah, all, often. You know, <laughs> the speaker of any legislative body goes through every day recognizing that tomorrow – uh, he could or she could lose the speakership because you serve at the will of the majority. And so there were numerous times when uh, I worked with the conservatives of the class of 1994 uh, and we threatened Newt's leadership. Uh, the very first time that it happened, uh, I don't recall the particular issue, but I know my class was unhappy because Newt had not done something they want. We resolved the issue, and this was within two or three months of when I had been elected and been sworn in when we were serving. And after we resolved the issue, uh, Newt came to me uh, and did two things. Recognizing that I appeared to lead the conservatives, he said, John, uh, you're not a member of elected leadership. Uh, you, you, know, you have no right to demand to attend the meetings of elected leadership, but you represent an important constituency in this Congress. You represent clearly the freshman class and particularly the conservatives in the freshman class, which look to me like the majority of the freshman class. So I'm going to extend you an invitation, John, to come to every leadership meeting, elected leadership meeting, so you can be in the discussion and we can hear your perspective. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. How did I do that? But 
what it did is it satiated the demand of the conservatives in my class uh, for a voice. And they knew that I wouldn't go along with anything that came up at a leadership meeting uh, without expressing what I believe to be the views of the conservatives. Sometimes I'd be asked to go back to the conservatives and and ask them if they'd be willing to concede on an issue or modify a demand on an issue. But it was a way of getting uh, the conservatives in my class a voice in the room. And at the end of the day, there are really two things that these negotiations involve. One is substantive issues that you can resolve in advance. That is, fights or issues that you know at the time you're going through this process. And we've seen that in this set of negotiations. Apparently, the conservatives and the populists who are anti-establishment have said, we want a commitment that there will be hearings on the Biden family corruption. Uh, McCarthy agreed to it without batting an eyelash. Another one of those demands was, we want an investigation of the FBI and its partisan activities and whether or not uh, it holds the confidence of the American people and needs either reform or abolition and replacement. McCarthy agreed to that. Another example is the rules package. Uh, I'll give you uh, just something that's, uh, that, that we went through. When I went to Congress, and it's still true today, the vast majority of the legislation Congress has enacted consists of programs, and they are authorized and then funded. And that's why when you hear people talk about Congress, you hear about authorizers who authorize programs and appropriators who fund those programs. Most That all goes by a lot of people, but it's a part of the process. Well, most programs that are authorized are authorized for a spent a set period of years. So you could authorize food stamps for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the 10 years, you it would expire and you would need to reauthorize it. And you will recall, as most of your listeners will recall, that Ronald Reagan was famous for saying uh, there's nothing as close to immortality as a government program. Mm -hmm. Well, the vast majority of federal government programs have been authorized once and are never reauthorized, but they are funded forever and ever and ever. So we would go to the floor day after day after day after day and amend programs that were already authorized or appropriate money to programs that had been authorized, but their authorization had expired. In the rules package this year, uh, Mr. McCarthy, I think prudently, said to the conservatives and and the majority, I think, of the conference agreed with this, that a point of order would lie against any appropriation for a program that wasn't authorized. So it was kind of time out. The original concept of creating the program but having it have a specified lifetime was a good one, and we shouldn't be continuing to appropriate money to a program that was authorized for five years 35 years ago. We ought to look at the substance of the program and see if it's working. And if it hasn't been reauthorized, then before we give it more money, we ought to examine whether it's structured properly or whether it's had mission creep and it's doing all kinds of things it shouldn't do. Well, in this case, uh, McCarthy conceded in the rules revisions to say that a point of order or a rule, an objection would lie to any appropriation 
for a program that wasn't authorized. That's a huge reform. Let me hold you on that for a second. We've got to take a quick commercial break. Let me pick up on that as well as something you said that was really interesting a segment ago, John Shattuck, which is about the Republican Party maybe not being one party. Maybe it's made up of several factions. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm Seth. John Shaddix sitting in studio with me. Delighted to have um, his uh, sane and smart uh, voice and brain with us here. John, you had made an interesting point earlier, and it, I guess I would I would think of it this way about the Republican Party maybe not being just one party. Um, we went through this this past uh, election uh, uh, last year. When we go through it, maybe this is unique to Arizona. I don't know, but it seems like it's 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 throughout the rest of the United States. <laughs> During the primaries, there's an awful lot of Republican signs and an awful lot of Republican candidates running for the same office. The Democrats don't seem to have that problem. Right. Um, we have this myth of the moderate Democrat. I say it's a myth because I can't tell you the difference between a Bernie Sanders administration and a Joe Biden administration at this point. Or there is AO. none. Okay, so you're agreeing with me. <laughs> Is the Republican Party made up of too many factions or interests within it? Is it more than one party at this point, or is it always been thus? Your dad is a legend, of course, for helping make the modern conservative movement in America. How do you see it? Um, I think it is very much going through that debate. I don't think it has ever been just one party, but there have been lots of times in the past. Old Water and Rockefeller could have been two parties. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. uh, There have been a lot of times in the past when we have been able to bridge our differences and come together. Um, In recent years, it's very clear that at times we're not able to bridge our differences. We are clearly uh, um, a a coalition um, made up of people with different interests who by and large are willing to call themselves Republicans, but who divide bitterly on other issues. One of the things that drove me nuts in Congress was that the Democrats are very monolithic. Yeah. They they all agree, absolutely passionately, completely agree on big government, on government doing more, on government taxing more, on government regulating more, on government protecting people from themselves more. And so every day on the floor of the House, it would be their united force. Uh, If it expands government, if it taxes more, if it spends more, if it protects more people, if it gives away more money to the unproductive, if it makes it easier for those who just refuse to work. I mean, what the heck? Speaker Pelosi said, look, if you want to grow up in America and you just want to spend your life playing your guitar for yourself, we ought to give you free health care. That should be a, a choice. And they are monolithic on that. Amongst Republicans, it's a very broad divide and a broad divide on a lot of issues. Right now, we are seeing a a strong populist movement, and I'm seeing a lot of Republicans who say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm a Republican. I may be a populist. Uh, Look at the – has there ever been a time in your lifetime – I know there hasn't been in mine – when we were divided on foreign policy issues – We've always been divided on some points. more now than before. But but where we are at war, as we are in Afghanistan, but Republicans are saying this is not a good idea, that's a pretty big divide. And we've seen it right here in election in Arizona, where we saw a populist candidate win the nomination for governor and for other offices and then not be able to hold the support of Republicans in the general election. So – I think the party is big enough for all of that. But the kind of crazy thing is uh, 
They say uh, that Republicans don't believe in diversity. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party is vastly more diverse than the Democrat Party, at least if you look at political philosophy. Uh, The Republican Party will tolerate Republicans who think we absolutely should not be uh, supplying Afghanistan in any way, shape or form. And other Republicans who think, you know, we ought to be putting airplanes in the air. Mm-hmm. So so there is that diversity. And, and I would say that is exactly what's happening right here. McCarthy has satisfied the conservative wing of the party. And from my friends in Washington, he mostly did that by two things. One, paying them respect. And I have my own personal problems with McCarthy. I serve with him. I know him. I respect him. But he's not a philosophically driven Republican. Yeah. Um, However, he's a pretty good practical politician. So he saw that he had to negotiate with the conservatives, and the rules package is where that happened. Okay. But the problem is the there is this substantial group of what I'm calling populists, most of whom are conservatives or think of themselves as conservatives, but but they are just reflecting frustration and anger of the American people with government. So quite frankly, I think part of the problem we're facing right now is they don't know what to demand other than change. We don't okay. know what we that, want. We that's just, an important point. Let, we just want McCarthy gone. That's an they don't know what point. they want. That's, they just want McCarthy gone. And that's my problem with populism. This was a short segment. We'll have a longer one coming back. Populism doesn't embrace my theory. My theory. Populism doesn't embrace a set of values or an ideology. Exactly. And that's the problem. I think your old buddy and uh, my old teacher, William Buckley, had it right when he made the distinction between someone who's conservative and someone who is a conservative. If I'm hearing ah. you right, McCarthy is conservative. He's not a conservative. You were a conservative. Absolutely. Goldwater was a conservative. Reagan was a conservative. Well, let me, let me, let's do that when we okay. come back. Let me hit the quick break, and John Shattuck and I will be right back on that point. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Shattuck has uh, been my in-studio guest, continues uh, with us here, former congressman uh, representing uh, the great state here, Arizona. Was it District 4? I guess the district changed district, it at district that time. District 4, when district I first four. ran, yeah. I still kind of think of it as 4. Yeah. They changed it to 3, but in my heart, it's always District 4. It's always 4. four. I suppose that ties back a little bit to John Kyle, who had it. Yeah, I think of John district. Kyle, and before that, was it Eldon Rudd? It maybe? was Eldon Rudd. And my dad ran, a Rudd, ran Rudd's campaigns. And who was it before Rudd? Uh, yeah, nobody. No, right. <laughs> didn't matter. They probably didn't have the district. Um, all right, John, a couple things. One is, talk to me this issue of populism, which a lot of us are trying to wrap our hands around, heads around, because I have said populism, I think, is, is, is can be a healthy thing, can be a healthy thing. In and of itself, it's not a philosophy. It's not libertarianism. It's not neoconservatism. It's not paleoconservatism. It's not traditional values. And it it doesn't really tell you what it means or wants when it comes to what you were saying, for example, when it comes to issues like foreign policy. So populism, I think, needs a philosophy for it to work or succeed, which I think is a question of leadership, quite frankly. And I don't know if we have great leadership in the populist movement. We might. I don't know if we do. Um, Talk to me about that and this distinction between someone who really can unify the conservative movement within the Republican Party. We were talking just before the break. Bill Buckley liked to distinguish between someone who was conservative, which we think of McCarthy as someone who's conservative, as opposed to someone who is a conservative. It's in their bones. It's in their – it's who you are. You are a conservative. Um, 
let me. I threw me, a lot at you. <laughs> I was going to say, take yeah. it any way you want. Let me jump back for a minute yeah. and, and talk about the fact that the Republican Party is a more philosophically yeah. or politically diverse party. Good. We are willing to tolerate each other, and I think that has been a benefit to the nation because it has enabled us to have two parties. If each party were as monolithic as the Democrats, by God, big government, more spending, more taxes, uh, or whatever their agenda was, if they were narrow and monolithic like that, then you'd wind up having 12 parties or six parties or 17 parties. And governing would be even harder. I think the fact that the Republican Party is a broader party, a more freedom-embracing party, uh, it bring it will encompass people who have differing views on foreign policy, but fundamentally believe in freedom and small government. It'll have people who have different views on uh, taxation, mm-hmm. uh, but fundamentally embrace uh, freedom. And uh, that fact that it's a broader uh, party makes it more difficult to govern. And in this case, which is a kind of a reflection of, of my day back there, there are the mainstream Republicans and then there are a subset. In my day, there were the mainstream. Connie Morella. There you go. In Maryland, and, I think. And we embraced right. Connie Morella right. even though she drove us crazy. Right. Um, so, and there were other moderates like that and you just understood. And by the way, um, the secret to leadership, I believe, uh, for a legislative body is number one, respect. And by respect, I mean treating each of those people. Connie Morella and a couple of the other very moderate members would drive me crazy because you'd ask them what they'd want and they'd say, well, I don't know, but I just don't want government to do harm. Yeah, yeah. How do I negotiate that? Right. Um, or or uh, others, in my view, uh, the... Denny Hastert as speaker may be flawed as a human being in other ways, but he had respect for every member of the conference, whether you were very moderate, like Connie Morella, or very conservative, like John Shattuck, we'll say. Um, He respected you and would listen to you. And they say that McCarthy listens to everyone. But what has happened in this particular instance is that he, in his effort to become speaker, negotiated with the conservatives and made them happy, but he didn't recognize that there was another constituency of, An, of conservatives, popul- of, yeah. of populists. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just lumped them in with conservatives, and that wasn't enough for them. Okay. Part of the problem is, I agree with you, populists by and large want uh, to be treated fairly, but they don't quite know on a consistent base, basis what they mean by that. Right now they mean... They want election integrity. And by God, if they don't get election integrity, then they're going to be angry. And how do you satiate them? Well, solving the issues surrounding uh, election integrity in a day is pretty darn hard. I would argue that conservatives, their their binding uh, force is uh, fundamental values, agreement on a set of values that, you know, you have Fans, to be truthful. The life, truthful. Yeah. You have to be honest. Uh, you know, you have to have that set of mora- morales uh, that you or mores that you agree upon. The conservatives have that. McCarthy has satiated that. The problem we can't figure out. And, and you said earlier, I think you said uh, this looks like it's a temper tantrum. Yeah. It is a temper tantrum. Absolutely correct. It's a temper tantrum by the populists. 
So it's a temper tantrum by uh, Mr. Bo- Ms. Bobert mm-hmm. or Bobert uh, yeah. and by Chip Roy, Roy and, and by Matt the others. Gates, right. mm-hmm. The problem is they don't know what it is they want. And so M- McCarthy hasn't figured out how to satiate them, how to get them happy. Ah, interesting. A- and and yeah. I, would, <laughs> I would argue that, that to some degrees that's where conservatives were. Uh, Sounds more like got, a tantrum the more we describe it. A it crying a, baby, you don't know what the heck to do with it. It is a tantrum. But yeah. For example, when we were conservatives, we were angry with what the establishment was doing to us. Right. So we made substantive demands. Okay. And I would argue the conservatives this time around have made substantive demands. We're now not going to vote without a rule. Being Somebody can raise a rule and object to a program that isn't authorized. We're not going to continue to fund programs that are not authorized. So that's a concession McCarthy's made, and he's made lots of more, lots more, and he made them in the rules package, and the, he, he satiated the demands of the conservatives. But we, had, we wanted more because I, I kind of said it like I said to you when we walked in. Shirley and I can't figure out every financial problem we're going to confront in the next 12 months. So I can't, we can't negotiate today on January 4th the resolution of every one of those uh, financial issues that's going to confront our marriage in the next year. So what do you do? And my argument is that you reach an agreement that sets some rules. For example, Shirley can say to me, you know, John, I don't want you making any decisions that involve more than $29.22 without talking to me. So what is that about? That means I have to have a right at the, to be at the table. When, when Newt was threatened by the Republicans in my class, my freshman class, and by their conservative views, Newt said, Shattuck, you're not an elected member of leadership, but we're going to let you come. And that gave the conservatives a seat at the table. So they didn't feel left out. And what I would argue is McCarthy needs to go to them and say, what is it you want? And if they can't come up with them uh, with an answer, the the populist, Mr. Chip Roy uh, and his colleagues need to say, OK, you we've made some demands. You've agreed to some of our demands. Our next demand is a seat at the table. And and that's all you can ask. If you are at the table, then you can express your views and your views will either carry the day or they won't carry the day in, in legislative bodies. Uh, talk to any member that's served in one. Many, many, if all the, not all decisions are made at the top by leadership. Well, if you have a seat at the leadership table, then you've at least got representation and you really can't ask for more than that. And, and I would argue that what the populists are saying, even about election reform, is we want a seat at the table so we know whether election reform has cleaned up the elections and they are fair and fa- and and honest it's about trusting not and somebody else right. telling us right how long are you and shirley married uh, uh, going on 40 years there it is it's a great hey john shattuck <laughs> thank you sir much appreciated thank I'm you i'm seth liebson Portions of this show are brought to you by our good friends and sponsors at Y-Refi. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, they have an investment for you in a portfolio that is not correlated to the stock market. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed rate of return. How high? Up to 10.25%. 5%. Why Refi is a deal uh, is a due diligence approved firm and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter y then refy.com or give them a call at 888 yrefi 34. 
888-Y-REFI-34. All right, let's close with uh, that Rudyard Kipling, shall we? This will be poetry moment. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, and if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. That's the poet uh, Rudyard Kipling with his poem, If. John Shattuck, our guest this past hour, said he used to give it out to uh, people who supported him. I give it out to all of you, and I think maybe not a bad poem for all of us to keep in mind as we go through these uh, next few days, hopefully not longer, next few days of uh, choppy waters with a party's leadership when it is needed most. Until tomorrow, David Dahl, thank you. God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 